You can be seated. Thank you. Well, good morning. It's good to be back. Um, I was uh, on a mission trip two weeks ago and then just got back from a doctoral seminar at Southeastern Seminary. And so I got back yesterday morning. And so I'm, I'm happy and glad to be back with you. Uh, if you don't know me, my name's Jake. I'm the associate pastor here. And uh, to, today, we're going back to Revelation chapter 21, where we were a month ago. And um, last month, I preached on heaven. And the moment after that sermon, the Spirit kind of knocked on the door of my heart and said, you're going to talk about the other eternal destination. And my initial thought was, no. And then he was like, listen, you're going to talk about one side, you've got to talk about the other. So that's where we're going today. Let's go to verse 8. Sound good? Um, here it starts in Revelation chapter 1. And it says, uh, Revelation, I'm sorry, 21, verse 8. It says, but the cowards, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, all liars. Their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So as I get into this, I'm reminded of the words of Charles Spurgeon, who says, These are such weighty things that when I dwell on them, I feel more inclined to sit down and weep than stand up and preach. And if I can confess, that's how I feel right now, right? But we're going to walk through this. This morning, what I want to do is I want to unpack three pictures of hell that we get. I'm getting a little bit of feedback, so as we work through that, let me know. Um, and I want to drill down, what do we do in light of this? So that's where we're going today. We've got three pictures. The first one of it is this, hell is a place of eternal torment. Like these images that we get in Revelation 21 and 22, they're awful. Um, and I wish they weren't true, but they are. We see images of fire and sulfur and eternal death. And anytime you read Revelation, there's always people that say, well, let's question which part of this is metaphor and which part of this is literal. And what I would say to that is, listen, even if some of this is symbol or symbolic, listen, these are not good symbols. Anyway, you slice it up. The symbol is only pointing to something that's even a greater horrible reality. Um, and so wh what I want to do first is I want to deal with some of the pushback, because in every generation you have pushback to this eternal reality. So we've got some questions that people would generally ask. I want to go through some of those questions. The first one is this. Is hell really eternal? And we have to assume so. The same Greek word for eternal life is the same Greek word we get for eternal and eternal death. So if we want everlasting life to be eternal, we have to concede to the fact that eternal death is eternal. So then people might ask, well, how is this fair? You're telling me for 70 years of sin, I have an eternal punishment. And this one's kind of interesting if you unpack it. You see, sin is going to gain its wickedness by the one it's committed against. So I'm, I'm going to give you a line of thinking. This is an illustration. What I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of name a sin and show you the consequence. I need to say this, though. These are things I would never do. This is just an illustration, okay? All right? But if I punch a wall, what are the consequences? I look silly, and I may break my hand. Okay, 
I would never do this. Let me just say that again. If I punch a dog, what would happen? I would look horrible, and I would have to pay some fines and medical bills, right? Okay, if I punch another human being, I'll probably go into jail, and that human being will probably attack me back. If I approach the Queen of England with my fist raised, what is going to happen? Something worse than jail will happen to me in that moment. So do you see the progression? The consequence is greater because of who is sinned against. So when we sin against an infinitely holy God, we have now done an infinitely wicked thing. When our sin is against an against eternal God, that warrants an eternal punishment. The duration of the crime does not matter. It's the dignity against whom the crime was committed that then brings the severity of the punishment. Do you see that line of thinking? So then the next question is, well, listen, why can't God just let it go? He tells us to forgive. Why can't he? Because he's just, right? I mean, justice always demands restitution in some way. Like, we hate it as a culture when justice is evaded. When there's a court case and somebody gets away with some type of gross form of injustice, that makes us mad. Perfect example, O.J. Simpson, right? That guy literally got away with murder. But here's the thing. God's going to ultimately right all wrongs, and hell is one of the ways that he does it. So then some people say, well, why doesn't God just do something about sin right now instead of waiting till the end? And the answer to that question is he has. He's done something about our sin. He sent his son to take on the punishment of our sin in our place on the cross. You see, there's two ways that we pay for sin. Either the eternal son of God pays for it on the cross, and by faith and repentance, we accept it and it's credited to our account. Or you pay for sin eternally through your good works that are never good enough. Either you pay or Jesus pays. And I'll be honest with you, I want Jesus paying because I, I can't write that check. I can't write perfect righteousness. The second picture we see is we see hell as a door, but it's locked from the inside. Let me unpack that for a second. Flip over to Revelation 22 now, verse 11. This is our other key text. And this might be one of the most illuminating verses in Scripture about hell. It says this, Let the unrighteous go on in their unrighteousness. Let the filthy still be filthy. Let, but let the righteous go on in righteousness, and let the holy still be holy. What this is driving at is that the people in hell will never repent. Like, they're going to remain filthy. They're going to remain haters of God no matter what. They hate God's authority. Their hearts are always going to be corrupt and unjust. Therefore, the door to hell is always locked from the inside. C.S. Lewis gets at this in the book, The Great Divorce. He talks about a field trip where the people of hell get on a bus, and they get to go visit heaven for a little while. And here's what C.S. Lewis says. Uh, they hate it so much they say, we don't want to be here anymore. Let's get back on the bus. Let's go back down to hell. We don't want to be here. Frederick Nietzsche, my favorite atheist, because he's so honest, said this, I'd rather go into nothingness than to surrender my will to the God of the Bible. Wow, that's awful, but at least he's honest. You see, some theologians say this is what's meant by an eternal fire or a worm that never dies. When we have a fire and you leave it unchecked, what happens to it? 
it becomes uncontrolled, right? And it'll spread. Remember Smokey the Bear? Only you can prevent forest fires. Listen, this is what it's like in our lives. This is what sin is like in our lives if we don't receive Jesus' invitation for salvation. C.S. Lewis says, Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, bitterness, always blaming others. And then he says, Hell is where the sins you wouldn't repent of on earth begin to consume you in your heart like a burning fire. So that tells me is that in hell you become your jealousy. You become your insecurity. You become your selfishness and your materialism. You become your racism and your hate. You become your pride, bitterness, and dishonesty. You become your suspicion and your lack of trust. In hell, you become your fear. Here's the thing. Only Jesus can remove the curse of sin in your heart. That's why we trust him and not ourselves. But death represents that line where we become eternally fixed in who we are here on earth. And the sin that you would not repent of, it consumes you forever. So look at Revelation 21, 11 again with me. Let's, let's look at this for a second. Let the unrighteous go on in their unrighteousness. Let the filthy still be filthy. Let the righteous, though, go on in righteousness. And let the holy still be holy. Like, this is why God cannot allow sinners to go into heaven. If we were to go into... Uh, into heaven with sin still in our hearts, we would unlock the powers of hell there in the heavens. Heaven would soon be filled with pride, violence, dishonesty, treachery, and cruelty. So listen, hell is a door that's locked, but it's locked from the inside. The third thing, the third picture, is hell is our default destination. Now, most people think they're going to heaven. Uh, if you ever ask somebody the question, if you were to die tonight, how do you know you're going to go to heaven? What do most people say? Well, I've never killed anybody, right? We all kind of believe that we're going to heaven as long as we don't do anything bad enough to mess that up. You see, the Bible's going to paint a totally different picture. God did not create us for hell. Hell was created for Satan and the fallen angels, the demons. You and I were created for heaven, but... The rebellion of the human race, which we are all now participating in, has destined us for hell. Let me show you this. Flip back over. I know we're doing a lot of flipping, but go back to Revelation 21.8, what we just read. It says this, but the cowards, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, all liars. Their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur in the second death. You know what I find interesting about this list? You see the people that, that you would think would be there, right? Murderers, sexually immoral, the sorcerers. But what's interesting on this list is that there's people on that list that could be in church right now today. It says the cowardly. Well, these are the people who would never stand up for Jesus among their friends and their coworkers. The faithless. These are the people who went to church all their life but never trusted in Jesus with their obedience. The idolaters. These are the people who never put Jesus first in their lives. They sat through church, but they never made him first. How about the liars? These are the people that outwardly put off a godly appearance, but their faith was never really genuine. Now, here's the point I want to make. 
all of us at some point in our lives can be found on this list, which means heaven is not our default destination, hell is. But there's a big but we get to put in here, a huge, huge however, right? And the however is this, it doesn't have to be that way for anyone, right? Grace is free for all people. Look at how John ends the book here in Revelation twenty two seventeen. Both the spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who thirsts come and let the one who desires to take the free water of life come. John ends the book by saying, you don't have to go there. It can be different for you. Jesus has paid it all, and all you have to do now is receive that as a free gift through faith and repentance. Revelation ends with the Spirit saying, come. It doesn't have to be this way. Jesus died for you so that you can know him and enjoy him forever in heaven. But you've got to receive this offer You receive that offer through repentance and faith. I love Acts 15, 9, where James stands up before the church and says, we shouldn't make this difficult for people. If there's people who are repenting and turning and coming to God, we shouldn't make it difficult. So here's what I want to do for a moment. If for you right now, you've never repented and followed Jesus because maybe walking an aisle would be difficult for you, maybe because of anxiety or fear or maybe embarrassment, you would never want to come forward. If that's you right now, could you do me a favor? Hold your bulletin and get something to write with, and I want you to write something down. You ready? Here's what I want you to write down. 423-202-0198. Let me say it again. If that's you, you're, you've got fear, you've got difficulty. 423-202-0198. That's my cell phone number. This week, you text me or you call me, and let's set up a meeting, and let's talk about how you can have a relationship with Jesus. If you can't schedule an appointment with me, guess what? We have three other pastors and a whole slew of deacons who would love to talk to you. So if coming forward's a problem, you, you have my number. Now, for the rest of us who are like, oh man, I'm totally going to prank call him later, I just want to tell you something. I have a pregnant wife. She's pregnant with twins. After she gives birth to those babies, she will come find you, right? You don't want that. Revelation ends with the spirit and the bride saying, come. Who's the bride? We are. The church. The church is the bride. So here's the last part of this, this message now. What do we do in light of this reality? Church, if we really believe hell is a place and it's as awful or worse as this book is describing, we've got to do something. So what do we do in light of this? Well, let's look what Jesus says we should do. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Here it says, Jesus came near to them and said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the, Father of the, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you, and remember, remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. What do we need to do? Look at that passage. Let's pull out the verbs. Those are the action words. So let's let Jesus tell us what we need to do based upon these verbs. The first verb is this, go. This is a present participle in the Greek. What that means is that 
It's as you go, as you do life. But this means for us to be present with people. God is sovereign. He has placed you in a workplace, in hobbies, in a community with neighbors. He's done it all sovereignly with a purpose. The people who are in your life right now are in your life because God has placed them there and he has placed you there to be a light in their lives. So be present with people, your friends, your family, your coworkers. Be aware of what's going in their lives. Be present. The second verb is this. Make. Make disciples. I love Romans 10, 14. It says, how can they call on him when they've not believed? And how can they believe if they don't hear? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they're sent? Oh, how beautiful are the feet that bring the good news. People only come to Jesus when they hear the gospel. So if you're going to make disciples, you've got to open your mouth and you've got to share the gospel. I know that's difficult. I know it's hard. You see, sometimes we think people will see Jesus in my life just by the way that I live. And my answer to that is maybe, right? Have you ever seen me in traffic? Whoa, not a lot of Jesus there sometimes, unfortunately. And so that's the first thing. You're putting a whole lot of confidence in your life, aren't you? That you always live like Jesus. And here's the other thing. Romans 1 says this, that we can look at creation and understand that there's a creator, but we'll never be able to know that the Savior's name is Jesus, and that's who we call on. So saying that people could just look at my life and see, they won't know his name's Jesus unless you speak. They might know that you're a good person, you good people, but that won't tell them that there's a Savior, and his name is Jesus. We have to open our mouths. Now, I know that that's difficult. Some of you are like, I don't know enough. If you don't know enough, this is what you can do this week. You go to our website, you go to ministries, you find Christian development, you click Christian development, you scroll down to anatomy of a Christian witness. We have recorded every session of Dr. Cox's witnessing training for you to watch. You can get trained this week in sharing the gospel. We are without excuse. It's available to us. Here's the other thing. It's not as difficult as we make it out to be. Okay? How many of y'all have people who are worried in your life. They're worried about their parenting, their financial security, their job status. You know anybody who's worried? Does Jesus talk about worry? You bet he does. How about people who are stressed? You're stressed at work. You're stressed wherever. Does Jesus talk about that? You say, hey, this is what the Bible says. This is what Jesus says. Now let me tell you what Jesus did. We can fix this. It's not as difficult. We make disciples by sharing the gospel. We are God's mouthpiece. We have to speak. The third word is this. We baptize. Now, baptism is an event, right? But there's also a posture that we have in baptism. You see, baptism is our family identity. We baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is our uniform. It shows us who we belong to. God has always had a people, a family, and guess what? We are it. We are the family of God. We are baptized into his name. We are his people. So baptism, although it's an event, it's also a posture. And what it means is you invite people into the family. So you invite people into your connection group. You invite people to come to worship. Next, year, or next week is the start of our church year. That's the best week of the year other than Easter and Christmas to invite someone to church. 
you have an awesome opportunity this week to start inviting people to be a part of the family. But here's the other thing. I know that sharing the gospel and inviting people to church is not the same thing. I get that. But Francis Schaeffer, a theologian, says this. Our love for each other is the final apologetic. What if we could invite people to see the way the family loves and cares for each other in connection group and other places? And they'd be like, man, that's different. You people care for each other. Why? And you say, Jesus, that is why. It's our final apologetic. You invite people into the family. And then the last thing, we teach. We teach people to follow Jesus. Why do we do connection groups? Why do we do CDP? Why do Tim do student discipleship? Why does Megan do grow groups? It's not just so that we can be awesome, super Bible trivia Christians, although that's not a bad thing either. We do it so that we will know how to follow Jesus, and then we'll be able to show other people how to follow Jesus. Our goal in discipleship is that we make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. It's unending. We teach. Church, how do we help people not to go to hell? We do it by being present with people, sharing the gospel with people, inviting people, and teaching them to follow Jesus. Do you see how that's a progression? Think of a friend right now who doesn't know the Lord. Let's call him Bob, okay? It's a checklist. Be present with Bob. Share the gospel with Bob. Invite Bob to know Jesus. Come to your connection group. Come to church. And then teach job, job Bob how to follow Jesus. Let me land the plane. Y'all ready now? Some of you are like, yes, please. You know, it's been heavy. Um, listen, evangelism is not easy. I know that. If it was easy, everybody would do it. Statistics say everybody doesn't. But we're all called to. Hell is eternal. We've got to do something about it. So two encouraging words from Jesus from the Great Commission. The first one's this. He says, all authority is mine and I give it to you. You have authority. Jesus has given you that authority. What I love in Connection Group is I read the announcements. I didn't write the announcements. Cindy did. Cindy has given me authority to read the message to everybody in my connection group. People in my connection group don't like the message. Guess what? I'm just the messenger. You don't like the announcements, take it up with Cindy, right? It's the same thing. If people don't like our message, they can take it up with Jesus. Our job is to share the message no matter what. So you've been given authority from Jesus, and then here's the best part. Jesus is with you. He says, remember, I'm with you always even till the end of the age. Listen, you don't do discipleship alone. You make disciples of Jesus, and you do it with Jesus. He's walking beside you every step of the way, whispering on your shoulder and nudging you, hey, say this, hey, do this, hey, they need this. He's with you. He's with you always. Let's pray together. Father, as we have looked at your word, and Father, as we have seen in the Great Commission, you're always with us. But Father, we've also seen through the reality of hell, we've got to do something. Hell should be less crowded because of us. So Father, I start with the church. If there's somebody who's on our heart, Father, would you help us? Would you help us to open our mouths and to share? And then Father, if there's somebody in this room right now who does not know you, I pray this morning that they would come forward, that they'd have a conversation with me, 
and we would get them to a decision counselor who would help them and they would come to know you this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.